Welcome to Feel More, Buy More, the marketing and advertising podcast from System One that puts its data where its mouth is. In the third part of our Lemon podcast trilogy, author Orlando Wood sits down with Sarah Carter, global planning partner at Adam and Eve TDB, to discuss right-brained creative development. Hello, Sarah. How are you? Good to see you. Welcome to this uh, this podcast. Uh, I'm delighted uh, you're with us. So, Sarah, obviously co-author of How Not to Plan, uh, which she uh, wrote with with Les Binet and um, global planning planning partner at Adam and Eve DDB. Sarah, we uh, chatted uh, probably about six months ago now um, when I was. Um, starting to write the book Lemon, and I got the sort of central thesis and some of the ideas, but a conversation with you um, was was just inspirational because it, it set me thinking about the creative development process. And um, you uh, ha- had, had the honor and pleasure of working with one of the greatest uh, creative directors, at least in my view, <laughs> Um, of uh, you know the last 40, 50 years, um, and and uh, his name was John Webster, and uh, you've actually written a, a book about him, uh, which you kindly uh, gave me a copy of, and I, I just wanted today to talk a little bit about him because, in the context of falling creativity, falling creative effectiveness, which I trace in the in the book Lemon and changes in advertising style. I think it's, it's never been more important to learn some of those lessons or relearn some of those lessons from the past and how we can create work that really moves people. Um, and uh, so I thought, uh, why not talk a little bit about John? And uh, you can remember him and you work with him. So um, thanks. And I suppose uh, my, f- my first question of you is, how did, how did you know him? Well, um, I started my agency life uh, at BMP, um, and I didn't know how lucky I was in many ways by doing that, but one of the many ways I was very lucky uh, by starting my life there was that I, as luck would have it, the the main creative person that I worked with for for the first eight years of my time I was there happened to be John Webster. He just happened to be the lead creative on, on, on all my accounts. Um, so which accounts were these? What these were Dulux, uh, um, what was called CPC in those days, which was Nor Stock Cubes, Packet mm-hmm. Soups, that sort of thing. Um, I worked on uh, what was called the Meat and Livestock Commission with him then, which was Red Meat. I worked on uh, a milk campaign with him. Um, so th- and I don't know if anyone will even remember this, Texas Home Care. Uh, John wrote um, a very famous campaign about Texas Tom at the, at the same time. So, so it was pure coincidence. So, you know, there were obviously a lot of other creatives there, but I just, you know, I just lucked out really, and I, I got to work with him uh, on most of those. And and at that time, John had just written Points of View, the famous Guardian ad, mm-hmm. the year before. Uh, I would pause at this stage to say he was 52 when he wrote that, which a lot of people don't know, but. Um, Food for thought that you can uh, still be in yes. very much your prime, well, probably I'm writing your best ad by some opinion <laughs> at, that, at that age. Um, so he was doing more of his own projects at that time, but he was still heavily involved in the agency. We used to bring him into um, briefs that no one else could crack, and mm-hmm. he had kind of accounts that he felt particularly close to or clients that he yeah. worked with a long time, so he was doing work on that. So. Um, 
So first of all, I worked with him a lot, but then John died suddenly and unexpectedly, um, unfortunately, in 2006. And, uh, and after that, I kind of realized, because as we'll come on to, of his character, he was quite a shy, retiring person. He didn't really say very much. He didn't do conference speeches. He didn't really write very much. So it kind of felt like no one had really learned as much as we all needed to learn from him. So that was when I um, decided I'd write the little book that you talked about. So I took his 10 most fam uh, famous campaigns and I decided to uh, try and track down the directors who'd worked with him, the creatives who'd worked with him, the account teams that had worked with him, and then the clients that had worked with him on those particular ads and kind of piece together the story of how they all came about. And as you say, I wrote a little book which tied in with a BMP um, kind of celebration at the time. And then the WARC articles came from that as yes, well. Yes, so, so the, book, the book is called John Webster, the Earth People's Ad Man. Yes. Uh, in reference, of course, to his famous uh, Smash Martians ad. Um, and uh, it's not generally widely available, it's fair to say, um, although we would we hope it will be one day soon. We very much um, hope it will, yes. Uh, it's not commercially available. Not commercially it was, available. Uh, there were a lot of copyright issues at the time, which um, hopefully we could resolve. And yes. yes, I would love to be able to publish and get more. I'm sure uh, many people would, because they're, they're very keen to, to hear about, the, about him, aren't they? Uh, people in the industry and, and your walk articles, which are widely available. They are widely available. Very, very popular. Yes. And then having read your book, I guess it's just quite extraordinary, the synergy between the sorts of principles that he worked by and the sorts of work that he produced. Uh, it just felt uncannily yes. close to what, what your very fine trying, book and research has come no, out. Thank you, trying to describe, yes, yes, exactly. Well, I mean, just to pause a minute, because John's, I mean, John, what you said was interesting about John, uh, you know, being a kind of private man. I mean, he didn't—he didn't chase awards, did he? Uh, I mean, he—he he really was very much writing for the the, the person in the street. Um, and you know, he was vote. His ads were voted. Ten of his ads were voted in the top 100, weren't they? In, in 2000, by the general public. I mean, they, these were things like uh, the Smash Martians, as we mentioned, uh, and we're going back a bit with some of these. But the Cresta Bear, the Hofmeister Bear. Uh, the honey monster. There were lots of sort of furry, cuddly creatures, weren't there? Um, we always used to say with John, it wasn't so much that his campaigns had legs, but they had four and they were kind of furry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot brilliant. of furry animals. Yeah. Yes, uh, and then we had a Kiora trio, I think, uh, and the milk-stealing Humphreys. Uh, some of you might remember them. some of these. Uh, the, the Courage Best Gurcher ad, uh, John Smith's Arkwright's ads. I mean, there were just, just so many, um, and, and so many of them very memorable. In fact... Um, Sarah, we tested uh, a couple of these ads, so the Honey Monster uh, ad, the original Honey Monster ad, and the Smash Martians ad, and they came back as high four-star ads, even today, in the top 2% of you know, ads that, that would be aired as aired today. So it, it may feel like we're talking about someone from a long time ago, but the, the lessons uh, from him are, are, are relevant, or more relevant today, perhaps, than they were at the time. Um, so so tell us a bit about what he was like then. Well, um, as you said, he wasn't the kind of caricature ad man in any way, really. He was um, very quietly spoken, quite soberly dressed, and very hardworking at his desk by kind of 8 o'clock every morning. Um, Everybody obviously talks about the brilliance of the work he did, but what they often sort of forget was quite how commercially hard working they were. And, and John had a very uh, strong sense of the kind of business 
uh, effects of what he did and the commercial objectives of what he was doing. So you never had to talk, for example, to John about branding. His ads were fantastically... Inherently, implicitly exactly branded. Exactly, implicitly yeah. branded. Uh, and Yeah, very hardworking. And he certainly made entertaining ads. And I know your mantra is you need to... Uh, entertain for commercial gain, which I totally agree with, but they weren't just entertaining, they were entertaining and very hard working as well, because as you say, the, the, the branding devices and characters, which we'll come on to, that he used were absolutely locked into those ideas for MASH get smash. I mean, you can't get much yes. more <laughs> yeah, branded yeah, than that. <laughs> so, yeah, so he had an interesting personality. I think there were a number of other aspects that were interesting in terms of your sort of analysis. One was he had uh, very, very diverse kind of magpie interests. Um, so he would talk about how he read The Guardian and The Daily Express. There was a lovely article in a campaign where he was asked about his uh, media preferences and he said his favorite TV ads were the UK Dance Championships and Pingu, um, for those of you who know, is <laughs> the kind of claymation penguin. Um, but he also loved Desert Island Discs. He loved, he loved Terry Wogan on Radio 2. He had hugely kind of populist instincts, which we'll come on to as well. But he loved Lauren Hardy. Uh, that was the inspiration behind the jingle on Arkwright. But he loved Chopin's Nocturne. He loved Picasso. So an incredibly e eclectic mix of interests, which stocked his kind of mental pantry, if you like. Everyone who knew John just always talked about how his office was just stuffed full of things like snippets of bits on the bit of art that he loved there were cassettes in those days there were cassettes um, the music snippets that he'd collected he always kept a little notepad in his car and would wrote down, write down songs that he'd heard on Terry Wogan's breakfast show and so a fantastic array of kind of stimulation really if you like that he could then go on to connect up in in various ways Secret in weapons. his ideas <laughs> yes exactly um Oh, and you've talked, I mean, just a couple of other things maybe that are, are interesting and useful. One is he always had one foot outside of advertising. So uh, he was married to a nurse. He had a lot of mates who were teachers. He spent a lot of time run down the pub, but not in Soho. He hated award ceremonies, didn't like all that can mm -hmm. stuff. He, he valued much more what real people thought than, than the kind of ad world. So although his shells would be groaning with kind of lions and, and all the rest of it, what took pride of place over those were uh, the note from the children with the honey monster drawn on it. The you know the publicans who'd written in said they really loved it, loved his yeah. Humphreys work. So he had in, in incredibly populist instincts. And as someone once said of Dickens that he didn't make what the people wanted; he liked what the people mm. uh, wanted. And John was very much That's like that. Great, so he, great he um, yeah, he he. Those instincts served him very well, I think. And then just the last thing I think I would mention is he had a very playful, kind of childlike side to his personality, which I think, again, is very yes, right very brain, right if brain, you like. Yes. Always attuned to um, the kind of the funny or the odd. There was a planner who used to work on Harvest Crunch Bars who had a Lancastrian accent. <laughs> I think you mentioned it in your I, book, I actually. Yeah. And John used to just get him to say the word crunch, crunch. all the time because he just crunch. loved the way he, he said it. So that it's just a, he, he would well, always be it. attuned to those the right the brain is funny all about, little you know, It's not so much what's said, it's the way it's said. Exactly. You know, it's the intonation, it's the accent, it's Lo the, yeah, that's um, right. uh, you know, the kind of gestures the, the, that go with it. 
you know, I mean, there's a lovely, there is a, a half-hour um, documentary on YouTube about John Webster, I should say, at this point, uh, where you actually see him talking and doing yes. some of the actions of yep. the, the Smash Martians, you know, with his hands. That's right, yeah. Um, it's a very embodied way yep. of being and thinking and, 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 and communicating with it other is. people, isn't it? Which yes. is a very right-brained it is. thing. Yep. Yes, you're right. I mean, the, the, there's nothing really inherently... Uh, endearing about a Martian if you see that written on a script I mean the Martian could have looked pretty scary really could have looked like anything but you know the fact he drew them with their funny little pincer hands and that great big wide mouth and then as maybe we'll come on to got you know the guy responsible for the Daleks to do the laugh and yes. he well, always maybe we said should talk about it now <laughs> so because so because it's a fascinating story the, the, the smash Martians isn't it um I mean, tell, tell me a bit about... Because I mean, there was a real attention to detail. It was a real craft, wasn't it? There was. John? I mean, there was always craft with him, really. And when, the number of times you read about his work, or well, when I found when I was exploring, that he would get the very best person at a tiny, tiny bit of his idea to do it. So the Crest de Bear, for example, was drawn by a guy called uh, Richard Williams, who was a world-famous animator. Who framed Roger Rabbit. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and he was kind of tracked down to do that and went over to Switzerland, I think, to get a special pencil that kind of drew the crest of bear. Um, and that's, that's just an example of it. Yes, the Martians apparently, um, when John was trying to think what they should sound like, he went to this guy who was, uh, who at the time was doing the Dalek, but did an awful lot of, I mean, pugwash and lots of kind of voiceovers and characters. The Laughing Policeman, I mean, I don't know if anyone listening to it is even old enough to remember that, <laughs> but um, that was... Um, that was quite uh, going strong on children's radio at the time. But as another example of John combining things, he, he got the idea of the laugh from that. Yeah. Went to go see the guy who did the Daleks' voices and said, "Can you can you do me a laugh like a like a kind of Dalek?" And so that was then put onto the the Martians, and and that was he thought the secret to why that ad was just so incredibly popular. Because you still can't watch it now without smiling. You just can't. And then. There's that lovely little story at the end, which I think you might have alluded to in the book, where in on the shoot, one of the Martians at the end just fell over accidentally. Um, but it looked like he fell over because he was on laughing so he was, much. He was literally falling uh, about laughing. <laughs> exactly, yes. and that and that just added yet another little tiny layer of wonderfulness yeah. to that um, to that to that. Uh, to that ad and, and John always talked about leaving the door open for serendipity exactly. because it's often these funny and you hear so many times with ideas just things that didn't quite go right or not as un, uh, as expected they are the bits that actually people remember bits. and uh, and lift the thing so to leaving, sort of greatness so, so leaving a, a room if you like for serendipity and accidents to happen absolutely um, is, yeah. is quite important because uh, that's where the magic comes from if, if you like it's really important and uh, I mean another of his most famous ads I mentioned it earlier the Guardian points of view ad which many creatives still think is one of the greatest ads ever I mean that was shot with with sound effects it was meant to have you know kind of urban noise and shouting and sirens or whatever and and then uh, when he was looking at the rush he just turned the sound off or maybe that was even an accident I don't know but when he and Paul Whale and the, uh, the director saw that without sound suddenly it took on another whole level because it had a kind of hypnotic feel about it and you just focused so much on what was happening because there was no distraction from from the noise but that wasn't planned at all so um yeah i think uh, it, it's often that the unexpected it's in the, it's in the doing that these that the ma- magic arises yeah. and, and you and you know you 
we talk, I talk in the book, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's your um, idea uh, that you, you, I mentioned in the book, you know, about um, little birds. Mm, mm. Um, I love this expression of, of yours. So but little birds, you know, being the sort of bits of the grass that sort of, sort of stick to your legs as you're walking through the, f- the field uh, and you can't get rid of them. But sometimes there are just little ideas that, that emerge and... Uh, you can't abstract them, you can't over-represent them, you know, you've got to just run with them and, and build them out somehow. Can you tell me a bit about, about the little birds well, ideas, they, Sarah? They could be they could be anything, really. I mean, I guess the, the, cresters, uh, the crester bear's sunglasses are an example of that. I mean, a polar bear would not wear sunglasses, and but there's no reason for it at all. Yes. But actually, he just looked really cool when yeah. he had those on, and it's just a... It just made him more part of his personality. Uh, there was the the Hofmeister bears. Uh, well, he was based on the Fonz, apparently, Henry Winkler and, and Happy Days. And uh, John often said when you got a character's walk right, you got the personality. That's Laurence Olivier said, said that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and he was wrestling with how to make the Hofmeister bear feel kind of cool to young beer drinkers. And he got that kind of swagger from the Fonz and suddenly that, that it character. Made the character. Yeah. Yes. Came very to embodied life. again, very all very right brain yes, stuff. Yes, um, the honey monster. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense at all, does it? A yellow furry monster with a kind of camp mummy mm-hmm. man. Diffic- it's diffi- uh, it difficult just, it, to, it, to it's, know how you got it's there. It's completely and, and, and bonkers. What, yeah, but, <laughs> uh, but like, yeah, the poor client was an American, I think, who literally just joined uh, Quaker when when this this idea was presented and just literally had no idea what he was being presented with but actually went to the groups and saw how well that went down and so he you know he couldn't really argue with it although it made no sense at all so um let's talk about the honey monster because it's a fascinating story from start to finish and the little burr in that case was as i understand it um there'd been some groups as i understand and that someone had mentioned you know, uh, to a mother had talked about the, their child or children as little as little monsters. Um, and so I think John came up with a sort of small, irritating monster, first of all, didn't he? That was the, that was the sort of burr. And then what happened then? Well, then, uh, so at this stage, we researched all our ads with animatics. Uh, you know, that was a big part of the planner's job, travelling around the country. Carrying these huge showing <laughs> animatics to yes. lugging kit around yeah. in the uh, before my time when when people didn't even have televisions or videos in their houses a lot of the time. But yeah, so that came out of um, well, we I think we one of the processes maybe we'll do this first was um, which was an interesting right brain process was the idea of narrative briefing. So when I joined, I think there were there were creative briefs, but we didn't. We didn't have to fill them in, and we often didn't. So what John liked particularly was just a planner sitting on a sofa in his office and just talking, and you'd often just talk for half an hour because we'd done an awful lot of groups with people. We knew the people, their lives, the relationship with the brand, the category very well, so we would just talk. And because he was such a good listener and because he had a, the kind of brain that um, was tuned into the burrs, the, the, the mannerisms or yeah. the catchphrases or whatever, then he would pick up on something and, and combine it with something else and run with it. So, yeah, the little monster thing came out of uh, the planner working on sugar puffs, and, and that was how the mums in the groups often talked about the children. So his first idea was to have Honey Monster as a little badly behaved monster. But then when that went back into research, that didn't work at all well because to the mothers it was too much like 
an unruly, badly behaved child, which they didn't really want uh, their children seeing. And to the children, a monster needed to be big and kind of yes. crashing into Smash things and smashing things up. <laughs> so um, John did one of his flips, flips and thought, brilliant. let's make the monster enormous, but kind of clumsy. And that makes him endearing. And suddenly the mums were happy with that and the children were as well. And then you know, why he ended up yellow and furry and looking like that, mm. uh, goodness knows. But uh, well, that was one of the it, other things it that kind of worked. John did, wasn't it? He wrote, he'd write backstories for yes. characters, which I think is amazing, yes. you know, that uh, whether or not they were required yes. of, of him, you know, he would he would write their, their prehistory, exactly. where they came from. And this sort of helps, I suppose, in a right-brained way to fill out the character and Absolutely. to know what you can and can't do exactly. with Exactly. And, I mean, interestingly, a lot of his characters ran f for years and years in in their um, in in the campaigns i mean the honey monster i think the actual company was named after the honey monster in the end i think he probably still is appearing on packs or whatever yes, honey but, puffs, but it would be um but yes it was a a, a very uh, it was a, a way of a tight way of guiding the character on what it would or wouldn't do but you're right i think in a right brain way it also fleshed these characters out into they were always lovable and they were very believable and they had vulnerabilities and uh, and they had funny little foibles. So yes, there would be a backstory written about them. So for the honey monster, it would be, there used to be in Africa little monsters that loved honey and then they moved to another island and the honey was all high up in the trees so they had to grow to be big. And then for some reason, someone from the Navy came along and that was Henry who, and then the honey monster adopted him as his mummy, yes, and and yes. and, 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 then and you the rest think, was history. And the rest is history. So <laughs> there kind of is a an illogical logic it to yes, it. Yes. So uh, the thing holds together, but um, it, yeah, in a very right, a right, yeah, right, yeah, right it makes sense way. to the right brain. It does. Yes, yes. Uh, there was a lovely expression that some someone said when John first saw the script for the Martians. It, it said he loved the the beauty and the stupidity of it, which I think mm. is rather lovely and. Uh, I think that plays to that sense of right brain playfulness, not having to, quote, make sense, yes. um, not having to take it too seriously. Um, and I think because of the incredibly mundane nature of the products that John was working on, I mean, the creative revolution in America at the time was built on cars, like VW or airlines or, or retailers. I mean, John had puffed wheat and kind of it's dried potatoes so uh, stuff, you, yeah. you um you almost have to be kind of playful you with that to, you have to be more it forces you in a way doesn't exactly it? yes yes yeah. yeah. so the kind of the, the mundane nature of them i think really helped with all that kind of playful side and what one of the other little burrs i liked um to hear you talk about was the the, the humphrey so the, the 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 milk stealing monsters and um uh, this this came from an observation that this was in the days that when milk was delivered to people's doors with milk floats in this country, um, and uh, I, I understand that you know um, people at the, at the time, the heads of the household would say, um, you know, uh, where does all the milk go? Uh, they couldn't understand where it all gone, and it was that little idea that that led to these these. Monsters. Yeah, the, the, the Humphreys stealing the milk. Uh, and to start with, uh, again, this shows how uh, through rounds of research, these ideas were kind of very fluid and developed. So to start with, the Humphreys were actually seen um, and they were little creatures that stole milk because they needed milk. And because they needed milk, they were kind of 
puny and had bad bones and bad teeth. So they looked absolutely revolting. I mean, it failed. <laughs> it failed fantastically uh, in, in research. So it, that was kind of back to square one on that. So the, the planners said, well, you can't, you can't possibly have them looking like that. They're, they're revolting. But then, of course, if you made them look nice and healthy, then that's not very interesting at all. So in another of the kind of Webster flips, he thought, well, I know, well, they'll love milk, but we're not going to show we're them at gonna all. We're never going to see them. And you or, never see them. No, you don't see them at all. But all you see is, again, fantastic branding, the little candy striped straws that kind of march across march the street around or, or, and, uh, or, or try and sort of find their way into into a celebrity's you know glass of milk and and you can see the see the the, the sort of straw making its way in and being batted away yeah. type thing and another Brilliant. amazing catchphrase with watch out there's a humphrey about yeah. which which got you know repeated, repeated everywhere, everywhere and shouted across yeah. playgrounds and pubs or whatever so and in fact john would talk about how he deliberately built those things in i mean this was before viral was ever a word used anywhere near kind of communication but you know the the, the crest of bears mannerisms and these catchphrases and, and humphreys and, and all that stuff he very deliberately built in so that people would spread them by talking about them so uh he had a really good ear didn't he for he, for, yeah. for what people might copy yeah. might say um, he had a he was a great listener he would literally you know sit with his head cocked to one side and yes he just was very tuned to these things that sort of stuck out I guess and uh, uh, and and felt playful and and entertaining and he listened very much uh, to help himself not to be polite so um, yeah it was a good kind of spotter of things which is why he liked that narrative briefing because in our kind of burblings then you, yeah, you, something you would just comes t- out, something would come something in yeah comes you out. wouldn't really know I what it was going to be that would be useful but something usually right. did end I up being useful I think the art of conversation uh, you know is, is, is being lost you know <laughs> and talking to people it's it's in those moments that you that something emerges um, often over lunch i i think uh, but um, but yes yeah, so so really really fascinating what one of the i mean you talk about um, You've talked a couple of times about the role of research, you know, when it's done well in the in the sort of feedback mechanism. Um, it seemed like it was quite important for John just to get some feedback. It was massively important, yes. I mean, I think in the early days, he probably didn't like it too much, but then he came to realise how useful it was. And, and I think he did have a very unusual skill that he could have an idea that, like the Humphreys in its original incarnation that maybe didn't work very well and you'd come back and talk to him and he would be able to reshape it if you like so I think he was one of his nicknames in the department was the potter because he could kind of reshape things and not all creative people could do that but and and then he came to positively like that really or he'd moan about it at the time and then the next day he'd say oh I've got something much better here and uh, it would have kind of effortlessly flipped into something else and uh, he was just a great uh, master at, well, I guess all creativity is combining things and making connections in different ways. But, I mean, going back to what we were talking earlier about that well-stocked pantry, the more dots you've got, the more you can connect them in interesting ways, I think. And he was just very good at flipping things or recombining or whatever. And uh, I mean, the uh, Cresta Bear is a, is a nice... So if, if uh, I think it's Easy Rider and, and Jack Nicholson. There is a scene where he swigs the... Yeah whiskey or whatever it is and he he makes he, you know his he sort of i won't try and do the impression but it's sort of a, there's an arm movement and a cluck, 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 sort of thing and 
And it's very similar when you look at the Cresta Bear and what the Cresta Bear does. But, but you know, he's brought in various other things as well. Is it the James, James Thurber's cartoons, yes, I think? Yes, that, that black and um, white black style. black and white style. Yes. And then, you know, I mean, various things. Yeah. Then the wonderful and voice of that uh, Canadian oh, yes. voiceover Thick artist. Wilson, yes. which is actually his name, I understand. It is, yes. It's, it not, a, it's not a sobriquet, you know, it's, it's no, not a stage it's, name. It's, it's actual a, name. It's actual yes. name, Thick Wilson. Um, and uh, he, incredible voice. Yes. Uh, and so then the sunglasses. Yeah. Um, yes, it's 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 all in there, um, and it, it's all kind of layered up. And then the pencil that we talked about earlier, the the drawing, and and I think what people forget when and if they ever do look back on the Crest of Bear now is he kind of oh yeah, it's a black and white bear. But actually, at the time, color TV had just come in, and so of course everyone was scrabbling to get color ads out, uh, and it was seen as an, an incredibly uh, brave and in many ways kind of regressive thing to go into black and white at that stage but I think that's another very right brain thing I think John was always very aware of what would stand out aware of context um, yeah. exactly and he always said he liked to be unfashionable so because that made it different really so I think that was chasing cool is never cool is it no, exactly. uh, you, you, uh, doing something Distinctive yes. is, is cool. So in a, in, a, in a world where everyone was in a frenzy of trying to show how colourful they were, he did this incredibly stripped back black and white little sketch, mm. really. And of course, it, it completely kind of stood out. And there's even, even for a black and white line drawing, there's mm. an incredible depth to the thing. Yes, I mean, well. you, you really know, feel you know that character, don't you? And, you? you know, the, and at the end, mm. it's frothy, man. You know, it's, yes. it's great. It's great. Yeah, really, the only really trouble with that was the... The product was the product decidedly was, was kind of dodgy, really. So I think it probably would have kept going. <laughs> Accelerated it kind of its chemically demise. suspect, uh, I think, but it yes. would have kept going a lot longer. I think that he did always say that it helps if you have a good product. Yes, but, uh, yes. But yeah. Um, so t tell me a bit about how we use music, because I think that's mm. a, an interesting uh, interesting yeah. area to delve into. I mean, again, at the time, you kind of think, well, that must be how everybody does it. But then you realise afterwards they don't. And I think quite often music comes in quite late in the creative process for various reasons. But for him, it was always locked into the centre of the idea. And pretty well always, if he was presenting an idea, and he did use music a lot, it would always start with, in those days, a cassette player coming out onto the table and the cassette would go in, play the track, uh, and the idea would spring from that. So it was it, it was very much built into uh, the idea and was the idea actually in a lot of places. And I think, yeah, we'll come on to lessons, I'm sure. But uh, I think that is something that's very, very uh, important for us. You know, you, you never pre-test without the right music because the music is so much part of that. And uh, again, it was part of his ear. He would people, Dave Trott said people would always uh, send creative department music tracks, you know, just speculatively on cassettes in those days and everyone else would kind of chuck them in the bin and John would always log them and uh, and use them and again, you you don't really realise but then you look back at these as there was the, in the George, the Bear, the Hofmeister there, were, there was that kind of percussive blast that went yeah. with that which perfectly yeah. f fitted that Fonz-like kind of swagger yes. bravado kind of blokey bravado if you like uh, and then on the other hand um, Arkwright I think I said earlier how John loved Lauren Hardy the little sting at the end of Arkwright was always that Lauren yes. Hardy-esque oh, yes, little bit which had a whimsy and a charm about mm. it um, the, this so referencing of the other by the way which in, in the book I talk about in, in Lemon has um, has disappeared you know the pastiche parody yeah. referencing of other things 
advertising has become a bit self-referential, sort of hall of mirrors, which is the way the left brain kind of operates. And I gets think anyone watching that wouldn't consciously, uh, you know, I didn't even notice it, it was kind of Laurel and Hardy at the end, but then you hear and you go, oh, yes, there is yes, actually. There is something there. It gives it depth, I suppose, yes, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And casting, I think we haven't mentioned, but it's another thing. You know, we talk about diversity a lot now. You never mentioned in those days, but Arkwright, um, the Yorkshire um, character, drinker, yes, yes yeah. was um, he was meant to be. Well, I, when they did the casting, they were looking for someone in their sort of 30s and 40s because, you know, I guess that would be the the target the audience target that you were. But yes. then this guy came in who was in his 70s then and was actually an alcoholic, I think, but you know, far older than anyone would ever have dreamt of using, but had such a kind of lugubrious face and a character built into it that um, that you, know, you could immediately was seized on by by John as just bringing such a kind of character to the to that bringing a performance to to the yes. thing, bringing an embodied performance yes. to it, and and I, I talk in the book and you do too in, in yours about um, the importance of actors, and actually they can they can completely. Uh, change a script uh, or, or make it better, can't they? Because they, theirs is an embodied craft, and um, uh, I talk about uh, uh, you know the the, the Barclay card um, uh, ads with with Rowan Atkinson, um, and just that, that you know his ability to 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 bring something of himself, and in fact you know kind of rewrote things you know <laughs> that were written by, written for him because yes. they, he could do he, it better he actually. knew what he knew what, what the character what he could do that, what was, he could uh, do that would be funny yes, exactly. exactly and there's a great uh, i mean it's not it was not not uh, well, not one of john's uh, ads but the the chinzano ads with uh, leonard rossiter and, and uh, joan collins you know it was his suggestion to do the what's the time music hall routine you know where where um she, of course, Joan Collins always ends up spilling the the, 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 the ice down her um, her front. So um, often actors, if ever we use them today, and um, it's not that often we do, but actors can bring their embodied craft and bring something else to that to the performance. Yeah, and actually, uh, just talking about the three-dimensional nature of characters, Arkwright was another interesting example of that because in the he was based on Andy Cap. Uh, that was the inspiration for that idea and uh, all the other creative teams apparently were trying to make it work as animation and John had the idea of doing it for real with a real person but again that failed inverted commas in the earlier rounds of core research because he was seen as a kind of lonely old yeah. bloke and uh, but then just giving him a a context so he had a, f a family albeit a, a kind of battle axe wife but he had a dog yes. um, he had a local pub the three ferrets he yes. had he had that wonderful sense of place the Yorkshire town where he lived he had his caps and there were lovely ads talking about the caps how he had a cap for fishing and a cap and just suddenly that this this life a backstory this again comes isn't to life a, yeah, yeah. And, and John would say you could just once you've got that you can just write ads forever to that yeah. because they um they write themselves yes nearly. yes yeah terrific terrific so what so what um you know we've talked quite a lot about about him we've talked a bit about his uh, working styles. What you know, if if we, uh, I suppose, what would be the what what lessons do you think there are today uh, to be drawn from uh, him, and 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 you know maybe how can we how can we avoid the incursions of the left brain? Uh, uh, what what can we do? What can we learn from him about um, 
you know, making memorable and noticeable work? Well, I think, and you mentioned a, a number of these in the book, the idea of um, fluency through characters, I think, is very interesting. Um, the power of three-dimensional characters and using them consistently. Um, and, you know, we all know there seem to be less and less of these Houston campaigns nowadays, but... Um, the fluent it, device, as Yes, I it, it makes yeah. it so easy, or John made it so easy for his brands to come to mind. He didn't require people to work hard to remember what these brands were. And, of course, you know, they they pay back so much because you could just use them for years and yeah. years and years. I mean, yeah. these um, couldn't help the fact that the the Cresta product was slightly dodgy, but, you know, you could have kept using him for years and years. So I, I think of a, a valuing of fluent devices, um, both creating them and hanging on to them when you've got them uh, is one. Um, I think the sort of playfulness and the fun, and, and you talk about where's all the humour gone in, uh, and you know, we all know that that's harder when you're doing global campaigns or whatever, yes, but one of I the think problems. it was interesting that I said with John, he sort of took it very seriously, his job, but you don't have to make it serious and 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 a playful sense uh, based on the fact that you know people really dried mashed potato is not the greatest thing in people's <laughs> lives and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's one of the greatest in life it's so. kind of a nod to that um so uh, you know, the need to be entertaining basically you talk about that so i think uh, you know a value of that things yes. don't need to well, humor gives, make humor sense brings with it a quote, sense of proportion unquote. and, and yes. humility doesn't mm, it and a sense mm. of self-awareness yes. that that seems to have um disappeared yeah. you know the self con advertising is very self-conscious today uh, which is a left brain thing uh, very sort of slightly paranoid and, and obsessed with power and control and and the right brain is, is very aware of its time and place in the world and and is you know sort of a bit more humble yeah <laughs> i mean we like a bit of, i mean i think john would certainly have understood boaty mcboatface yes oh, great. I mean, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. We, we like that kind of playful yes. stuff so and childishness i mean in, in, you know yes. in, in, in certainly in early years in children the right hemisphere is more dominant you know as it starts to learn how yeah. to play and connect with the world and yep. those around it yes certainly um a childlike sense of the world i think is uh, uh is is very it sounds yes. like a name drop but hugh hudson when i spoke to him was saying that uh, he thought john would have been a very good author of children's books because he had that kind of childlike wonder and simplicity he was able to go straight to the heart of, of yes. something and um, as as children do and in fact he did write a uh, hamilton mattress a kind of feature length animation which played to that sense of him very well but i think yes a sense of uh, of the childlike and the playful which does tend to get ground out of out of, everyone. of everything and yeah. everyone yeah. when the systems and processes take over uh, and then i think you mentioned your book again kind of dramas i was in, i was looking at back at john's work i mean I, he didn't really do voiceovers there was no, no. kind of no 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 voiceovers well, didn't why really would do you? vignettes it was uh, <laughs> but it was drama yes. narrative characters dialogue um so think Dramas, not lectures oh, or very techniques. Nice. Dramas, so not lectures. That's mm. worth worth uh, clocking, I think. Cause and it's yeah. brilliant. Because that gives you that sort of sense of betweenness, as I talk about in the book, you know, between characters. Um, and that, that's so important, that implicit glances, you know, the, the, the body language, which the right brain looks out for and understands 
perfectly. It doesn't need explaining. And you can do so much with that and more with that than you can with language, which is, you know, often very dry and, and, yeah. and, and you, your right brain switches off. Yes. Yes, actually, if you look at some of the scripts of what he did, there is hardly anything written on the right-hand side. There isn't a lot of, there That's aren't a lot of words anyway. Yes. It's, uh, it's, yes. it's all very tight. And yep. yeah, yeah, and the characters do so much for you. I mean, we talked about valuing craft and valuing details, um, not grinding the burrs out of the system, because the system and the processes, I think, can smooth everything and smooth things yes. kind of glide like tunnel, effortlessly off us and you yes. need the burrs. So um, stay open to the to the accidents and the serendipity. The and, sense and of flow over fixity. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Go with the flow and see what comes of it. Yep. yep. The the kind of the bonkers irrelevant possibly detail, but you know, why does the leaf Alexander the, the Hoff the Hoffmeister <laughs> bear shoot, you know, it's a leaf, a leaf yeah, it's sort of that's fantastic. Great. And the, the you know, Alexander the Meerkat, why has he got a Russian accent? Why has he got a cravat? Uh, well, why not? The, the, as exactly, he would have said, exactly. as he said to, when, when he he went to pitch the idea to Cresta, didn't he, of the Cresta Bear, you, you you tell the story of this and uh, the CMO says, Yes, but why is it why is it a polar bear? And and, and John says why not? Um, uh, the brilliant answer, I think. Um, uh, we need more of it. <laughs> we need more why nots, yeah. Yeah, so we talked about the flow over the fixity, but I think there is a sense nowadays that the script is kind of it, and that horrible validated oh, yes. storyboard. Yes, a legal document phrase. that cannot be yes. altered. But, um, but, you know, value craft, value what directors can bring, value all those other little things that can make it it's just the starting point, better and it? better yeah the script I mean, some of the clients i spoke to said they always used to kind of dread the call from john from the editing suite where he'd say <laughs> i've had an idea it's going to be black and white or, or something like that but uh, trust me it's going to be great yes yeah, yeah. yeah um so those kind of little details we've talked about music haven't we but i think yeah. that that is a key thing that just maybe fighting harder to get the interesting track that's central to the idea and les and i have, have done work that showed that music can contribute 20 to 30 percent of the kind of sales effect of an ad which is more than yes, enough to I'm pay sure. for We've most music big tracks changes in star rating as a result yes and often that's either added at the end or you know tested with the wrong track or you know, whatever. i think a bit so like metaphor it is a vehicle for thought you know music is a way of of channeling your kind of thought or creative processes so it's it can be used to set up an idea to create an idea really but it can also be used to signal a brand as a sort of repeated tune i think of papa nicole you know the kind of red renault clio yeah. ads or the hamlet cigar ads the air you know the bark air on a g-string um you know uh, and but it, it can also be used to sort of imply meaning beyond uh the, the what you're seeing you know so the the Hovis um, Boy on a Bike ad that's been recently re-released originally in 1973 that we tested, you know, 5.1 stars. Um, that it was it was recorded on a on a northern with a northern colliery band which uses cornets rather than trumpets and has there's a melancholy air to it and it immediately sets you in a certain time and place even though it's filmed in the south of england in the Shaft, you know in shaftesbury but it's actually it makes you feel as if we're in the north of england somewhere so so the music can can do give layers of sort of meaning yes. beyond uh, Absolutely. the the, the, and the I think visuals. that is an interesting point. There's an there interesting story that uh, John would tell about uh, 
where he took the whole uh, creative department to see Kubrick's 2001 oh, Space yeah. Odyssey ones and came back and said, everything's changed now. And I think the thing that he was particularly taken by was, which was another accident, apparently, that the space docking sequence with that Blue Danube trap was, was apparently came about, that Kubrick had told Webster when, when they were looking at the, the first kind of... Uh, version brushes or whatever you call them of, of when the space docking sequence was shot the the person the pr in the projection uh, Kubrick just said I'll oh, just put some music with it doesn't matter what it is I just want to see what it and they just happened to have blue Danube and stuck it on there and then when he'd watched it and he was silent and Kubrick just said you know if I put that with that they'll think I'm a genius yes. um, and I think the interesting thing for that that shows the power of incongruence with music because putting that Blue Danube with that incredibly futuristic, yes, makes it, it's kind of musac. It makes yes. you feel that the future is going to be the norm, whereas yes. the original intent was to put very futuristic well, music with enough, it. Well, funny enough, John Williams, when he was creating the Star Wars, you know, writing the Star Wars music, um, he made a conscious decision for it not to be futuristic sounding, and he wanted it to be sort of epic orchestral, you know, I guess... Wagnerian, you know, I mean, it, it draws. He draws on many influences: Dvorak, Holst, you know, all sorts of things that 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 make it feel just epic. You know, absolutely. Um, That's interesting, isn't it? Because there are there seem to be a growing number of kind of quantified tools now that can that kind of match music to brands, and yes. you kind of think, but actually, sometimes it's more powerful when they when, don't when match. They don't, and, yes. and, how, and how do you? How you well, you need a sense of the whole, so don't you? You exactly. take it all in, not mm. not just the bits and yep. in isolation. So, uh, so yes, yes so I guess that would that would be all that would be all terrific. useful learning now from. Yes, yes, and, and I mean, well, you know, it's been brilliant to chat about about John, and thank you so much for coming in. I suppose I just a couple of last questions for you. Um, what what would you like to see happen in advertising over the next five, ten years? Well, this is a, an interesting one, isn't it? Because I, I think we're in a, a great place at the moment because there's so much fantastic learning coming out about what makes comms effective, like you know, Byron Sharp, Les and Peter, your own work, uh, both oh, previously and this. Great work the APG is doing. So it, it feels like kind of more and more we have... We know what works, but we're not but doing it. <laughs> our performance seems to be going backwards, and I guess I'm not even sure what the answer is, but I suppose what I'd like to happen is this learning moving away from conference venues and training sessions into actually influencing what we do and, and making it happen in everyday practice. And um, personally, I think this is probably going to be less about processes and more about people. Um, there was that nice quote from Frank Lowe, I don't know if it was in your book or not, but he said, you know, show me a good ad and I'll show you a good client. And I think it is all about having, you know, behind every effective bit of communication, great communication, there is someone with great understanding, great judgment and kind of power to propel that idea through. So I think it is about valuing these people and putting them in places where they can make that difference. Um, and I, I do understand there have to be processes as well, but then I think it's then making the processes work in the right places and keeping them out of the way where they're not really. So it's where you apply the rigor, which I think you know Les and I have talked about in our book at the beginning, where you're getting the strategy right when it's out there and when you're evaluating what it's actually done, but try and create some space for judgment for these people 
terrific, terrific. And would you have, you know, what's, I suppose, what's the one piece of advice you'd give a, a planner starting out today? Well, that is a tricky one. But I, I suppose, given that we've been talking about John, I think, kind of personally, like John, I would say that you always need to fight to keep one foot outside of advertising um, in real people, really, and, and the real world. And I know that's more and more difficult as we, you know, kind of the time we spend at work absorbs ever more of our days. But it's such a it's such a funny old job, really, where there's this weirdly unusual mismatch between um, th- th- something that takes so much of our time and is so important to us and something that is so unimportant mm. to the people mm. on the other end yes. of the telescope. But there are not really any other jobs like that. I mean, if you're a plumber mending someone's yes. toilet or a mechanic yes. mending their car or a teacher or a nurse or whatever you're both kind of in the same place but we're in this bizarre job where there is a mismatch and I think if you if you lose sight of that um, you're going to become a far worse planner really mm. so I think if you Close can always the empathy if, gap. if you can always start from a point of glorious indifference in your audience then um, I think that's a pretty good place to start and you're probably going to end up a better planner because of it Fantastic. Sarah, it's been a real joy chatting to you and, uh, um, you know, look forward to more conversations like this in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the podcast and thank you to Sarah Carter for coming on and joining Orlando in this conversation. I really hope you enjoyed the last three episodes with Orlando talking about Lemon. And if you do want a copy of the book, um, I'll leave links in the show notes and you can also get it straight from the IPA, again, links in the show notes.